0: Welcome to The Lens with me, Ollie Barrett. The Lens is a business in the community podcast powered by Fujitsu and supported by McCann. My first guest today is the founder and chief executive of Starling Bank, Anne Bowden. My second guest is Cecilia Shapiro, the co-founder of Unis and Youth and an investment advisor to UNICEF Ventures. We'll talk about making the most of life and pushing for new opportunities we'll explore life-changing technology from drones to blockchain. We'll hear how to start a bank and how to make it stand out from the crowd, and we'll delve into how to improve our relationship with what for many of us is a sensitive topic, money. Let's get to the conversation. And Cecilia, welcome.
1: Thank you for inviting us. Thank you, Aldi. Great to We're be connecting
0: here. across the world, Cecilia. Where are you? New York. New York, New York. So good, they named it twice. And where are you?
1: I'm in Southampton, where we have a fantastic office just by the sea.
0: Excellent. Well, thank you for joining The Lens. And let's start with you. Founder, CEO, an extraordinary track record. Let's go right back to the start, though. Where did you start? Your first ever job?
1: My first ever job was as a computer science graduate uh, joining Lloyds Bank in the early 80s. Um, I never wanted to work for a bank. I wanted to be a scientist. I wanted to do something with um, computers and uh, and chemistry. And but my mum said, apply for one safe job. So I applied for a job in the bank. And in early eighties, I turn up in London and join Lloyd's Bank.
0: Wow! So almost uh, that that safety option turned out to be the start of an extraordinary journey. Let's go back even earlier than that though, Anne. I want to go to the roots of this.
1: I was born in Swansea in South Wales and I went to a very ordinary school, the local comprehensive school, and I loved maths and I loved things to do with systems and I thrived at school and ultimately I went on to study computer science and chemistry at university.
0: And if I went rummaging back maybe maybe too far perhaps but looking for those first relationships with money would i what would i find
1: i ran the school bank no you didn't (laughs) true 11 years of age i joined the um the local school and there was a role to somebody to collect the money for the school children and put it in bank accounts and pay out at the end of the year and i volunteered and i ran the school bank little did i think I'd be running a, a bigger bank, you know, sort of all these years later.
0: And how about the Lloyds graduate, the first rung on the ladder? If I told that, um, what, teenager, 20-something, that she would be running a bank, what would you have made of that?
1: I wouldn't have been surprised. I thought it was possible to climb the ladder if you were motivated enough and you worked hard enough. I thought that these things happened. You joined at 21 and you know, in your 40s, you got the top job. Then I realised the world was very different and it is going to be very, very tough for me to climb the ladder.
0: Let's talk about that ladder. Roles at Standard Chartered, UBS, ABN AMRO, Royal Bank of Scotland. I'm going to ask you to condense a number of years into some big lessons. You didn't half have an astronomical rise.
1: Um, I think I changed jobs every five years because I wasn't, doing exciting things or wasn't learning enough. My first job was at Lloyds Bank. Uh, my second job was at Standard Chartered Bank. I was a computer programmer and it was really hard work, working through the night, fixing all these bugs. And the people in the investment bank had an exciting role. They went around the world and they earned loads of money. And there was I working night and day. So I did an MBA. And at the end of the MBA, I quit my job in Standard Charter to become a consultant, because that's what MBAs do. And I did a couple of years working as a strategy consultant in banking, of course, for PwC, before I went off to work in Switzerland, where I joined Union Bank of Switzerland in Zurich.
0: So there's a lesson there about lifelong learning, not being afraid to step out, get some additional qualification. But how would I know the difference between... Feeling I wasn't being stretched, so need to leave the organization versus need to find a new role within a large organization.
1: I think it's very, very difficult to reinvent yourself in an organization. When you have a new job, you know, you can start all over again. New peers, new bosses, um, new people, and you can grow again. I've been to lots of different places and lots of different organizations and lots of different things but I've always been learning.
0: So let's talk about that deep end and an environment, certainly initially, with no bosses at all, entrepreneurship. Strikes me as not every day that you meet someone who wants to start a bank. Why did you decide that that was the thing you wanted to do?
1: I think I'd come to the conclusion that banks were broken and I was ashamed to be a banker. After the last financial crisis, things were pretty tough. And I'd gone to Ireland to help Ballard Irish Banks with the restructuring. And every day was about cutting headcount and making cost savings. And I went around the world talking to lots of people about what they were doing. And everybody was telling me the same story. And I didn't believe that story. And I kept thinking, somebody who's brave enough could start a new bank. And I didn't think it could be me. (laughs) Um, A girl from Swansea doesn't start a bank. And The more I thought about it, the more I thought it could be done. And then one day I quit my job. And the first time I uttered the words, I'm starting a bank, I shocked myself. But I come to the conclusion that the only thing I was scared of was making a fool of myself. And if I tried to do something that was very easy and failed, well, you know, that's failure. But if I tried to do something that's awesome, very, very ambitious and fail, well, nobody could criticise me. So that was the day I decided to start a bank.
0: Well, And as far as many people are concerned, thank goodness you did. Starling Bank, known as a challenger. I wonder what you make of that word. But given you had a blank sheet, I wonder what you thought were going to get rid of from all that you wanted to leave behind And I wonder where you even began to start in terms of the fundamentals, the values, the things you felt were worth putting down first.
1: I really wanted to do something that had a fundamental business model, was fair to consumers, fair to business. And it was possible to do it. It It's possible to take the very, very best technology in the world and build something from the ground up that had a different proposition, that didn't punish customers for getting things wrong, that brought all this technology to help people. And I knew it could be done. Perhaps it took me a long time to raise the money because people didn't think the vision was possible. I I wanted to reinvent banking the same way that Amazon had reinvented shopping and Spotify had reinvented music. And I think people thought that the plan was too audacious.
0: And of course, you set off on that journey. You raised a huge amount of money. What do you say, Anne, if someone's trying to provoke you by saying switch the logos around and in 2020 all banks are the same and we have to include Starling in that?
1: I say that we're on the top of all the league tables when it comes to um, customer service. We listen to what customers say and we respond very, very quickly. For example, once the lockdown came, We came to market with a connected card that was recommended by NHS volunteers to help people who are self-isolating. We're all about listening to what people are actually saying and responding. What I'm most proud of is the fact that as well as Starling coming to market, we've managed to get the big banks to up their game.
0: In that sense, you're a challenger to the status quo. Yes, yes. So in that context, Anne, I get a sense of evolution, not just of banking, but of Starling as you go along. I just wonder what that word means and what it means in practice.
1: More than anything else, we're a learning machine. And what we're very good at is launching a product very quickly, taking feedback, getting it better, and creating an environment where we're proud of the service we deliver. We're proud of our mission. And when you have this enthusiasm in an organization for doing a good job, It attracts the right people. People want to work for a company that means something and
0: stands for something. So what's an example, Anne, of the sort of thing that at Starling, you as a leader would do or say that you feel your former colleagues within some very large organizations simply wouldn't relate to? Because you're very clear that you're doing things differently. And I'd love us just to bring that to life a tiny bit. And you can be as candid as you like.
1: Okay, I answer customer emails myself. Sometimes the customers think I'm a bot, and I go, "No, it's Anne Bowden." Uh, And they set me sort of tasks, and I have to prove I'm Anne Bowden. Um, I, (laughs) I I go on to Twitter, and I think, "Oh God, that customer's got a problem," and I intervene and and help. But at heart, I'm a technologist. I love technology. I love being able to do interesting things, and I think that. We're an organisation of people who know stuff, that are passionate about learning things and using the best tools and ideas to bring value to people. And we, we love what we do and we're proud of what we do. And we're ambitious, and that's how Starling
0: works. Yeah, I get a real sense of that, well, personality, the human touch, and that ambition. It's a really, it's a fascinating combination. And please stay with us as I introduce our second guest, Cecilia Shapiro. Cecilia, welcome to The Lens.
2: Hi, Ollie, Thank you for having me.
0: Well, I'm going to encourage you through um, uh, telling us a bit about your journey. But first, your first ever job, where does it all start? So
2: my first ever job, well, my first, ever paid job really was at johnson johnson uh, in argentina which so this really is pharmaceuticals
0: wasn't...
2: yes um, yeah. i was working in marketing for akibu it's a leading brand of contact lenses and it wasn't really the place for me at all but it was like a chances thing that i ended up there and i absolutely loved it oh. i loved it i stayed i think a year and a half in total The truth is I had been volunteering in multiple nonprofits since I was 15 years old, and I loved the work of nonprofits. I loved working on social causes, but I was also very frustrated for the short-term impact and sustainability of the nonprofit world, at least at the time and in Argentina, which is very different to what it is today in the US. And in Argentina, nonprofits were working purely with donations as soon as they dried up, projects were discontinued, and beyond that, they were run by volunteers that constantly rotated So it wasn't the right environment to get things done. And suddenly I get to like, you know, my first real pay job at Johnson & Johnson where it was just easy. I had a team of better professionals that had gone through a thorough selection process and things would just happen. And I ultimately think that what kept me there was just, I think, having the best boss I ever had. And, you know, kind of following what Anne was saying, I was just learning on a day to day from an incredible person.
0: So you're already getting at that early stage, the feeds of business, of nonprofits. May I notice not every 15 year old is volunteering for a series of non-profits. Why were you?
2: At a very early age, I was kind of driven to have more empathy. You know, I think sometimes life experiences and challenges, especially at a very young age, Put you in situations that you have to understand, and that made me definitely more sensitive to other people's problems. And I was raised in Argentina, a country that, at least then, we had thirty percent poverty rate. And uh, when I was fifteen years old, I just realized that even in what you know, all the things I had gone through during my childhood there was a lot of people that needed more and needed more support and i felt like i could do something
0: yeah you were inspired cecilia by a very particular nobel prize peace prize winner just tell us how that happened
2: so i would work on a project and my aspirations and my vision didn't actually work the way i wanted to and uh, you know of course you analyzed all the implications and you realized i thought there were a lot of challenges for the mere functioning of this non-profit system that wasn't aligned to what I was envisioning as efficient for social development issues. And I think with that struggle, then I came around the business world where I had the exact opposite problem. I just loved the way it worked and functioned. You had a set of resources and there was really no failure. You would do a campaign and then you would have the resources to understand fully what went right, what went wrong, and then you Mm. would do it again and improve it. So the whole methodology was just so much better or more aligned with what I wanted to do that I was between these two worlds. And I started to look for other resources or, or things I could do. And I came across Mohammed Yunus' first book, Banker of the Poor, and his concept of social business, which is super basic, but it was mind blown in my head at the time. I was like so simple. A business methodology with a social impact goal. And I was like, that's exactly what I wanted to do and pursue. And I think his book really led me to change my career and uh, do different things.
0: Well, and and not just that, inspired by Professor Yunus, you created Yunus and Youth. Just tell us in practice what that is in the business of doing.
2: So Yunus and Youth is a training ground really for, um, for people that are using business tools to solve social problems challenges around the world. I worked at Grameen for a year and there I was exposed to this rising number of young people around the world that wanted to do a business, a social business and didn't know how. Anyone really can go ahead and start a business, but if they haven't studied how to do a marketing campaign, how to hire people, will they do it the right way? They will probably have a higher chance of failure because if you study those things, if you're exposed to a mentor to uh, any kind of training, you'll have a higher success of hiring the right person, of Launching the marketing campaign with the highest results. So that's when I realized that these younger people that were not exposed to the business training needed support. But I also realized that there was a rising group of more experienced people that also wanted to give back. So I created this model where we basically connect young people starting social business ventures with corporate people that want to use their corporate skills to do good. So we started working. With the entrepreneurs training them how to be entrepreneurs and then we realized that those skills were needed by large corporations especially multinational corporations that wanted to train their employees to be more entrepreneurial so we then migrated and did that whole training program to corporate professionals and we now like have these two sides of a coin where we train both sides of the, of the picture.
0: Brilliant, so this is Eunice and youth. Um, a very quick question on this. I'm just wondering to myself, Cecilia, hearing you talk, how useful this phrase social business is in 2020. So many entrepreneurs I meet are socially driven. They want to make money and make a difference. Uh, what do you think?
2: Fortunately, more and more businesses are incorporating the social aspect into what they're doing. There's a very strong difference between a traditional entrepreneur, a traditional business person and a social entrepreneur. Hmm. The main difference is when you are starting a business, you know, most of the times you want to make money through that business. And that's a very clear goal with very clear metrics. And as soon as you don't make money, usually you, you iterate on that business model because it's not working well. When the social entrepreneur starts a business, these two goals are equally important. and I think that's the difference. The social part could be important in the first case, but it may not be equally important. A lot of the struggle of social entrepreneurs is like balancing both sides equally. You need the money part 100% to be sustainable.
0: Cecilia, what do you say to the many entrepreneurs that you and I and Anne will both know who say, actually making money is a good byproduct but we started this business to solve a problem to serve a customer not to make money and we don't like your categorization us of us as money makers as our first incentive what do you say to that i think
2: that's very fair i honestly do not like 100% terms i think there's always a variance i think it's more like being a for profit organization versus being a profit-driven organization. So some organizations have the profit drive as the first goal. And thats I I don't think that's bad. I think organizations that do this many times serve multiple people and make a great social impact. But it just helps categorize this in the level that whenever you have a board of directors meeting, the metrics that will be the most important and the most relevant are the financial sustainability.
0: Right. Well, Cecilia, I'm dying to hear more about other aspects of your work, but I'm also keen to bring Anne in at this point. Anne, what are you making of our conversation so far? And to what extent is Starling a social business?
1: Starling is a commercial for-profit organisation, but we're highly regulated. And regulation means that we have more than just a profit motive. We have a whole set of stakeholders that we must serve. And we have obligations to our depositors, to our customers, to our employees, to society, to the government. And we have a structure and a governance structure that makes sure that all of those different parties are served. But I think nowadays, to be successful and to grow, you have to have the right principles at heart. You have to be an organisation that believes in the right thing, that believes in a mission, and that gives you the licence to operate. Yeah, you need the regulatory licence, and if you have all of those, then you have the opportunity to grow.
0: Yeah, and Anne, I mean, this is within an industry which is famously not one which covered itself in glory. If we go back to two thousand and eight firsthand, you will know. Any reflection on how the banks, including Grameen of the future, can start to avoid some of those enormous pitfalls?
1: I think every time we have a financial crisis, um, it's normally a different financial crisis. um, And the mistakes we make are basically applying the lessons of the past and not looking forward. I was ashamed to be a banker back in 2008, 2009. I thought... we. Got a lot of things wrong, and I really wanted to start afresh and have a new organization. Um, But I'm not arrogant enough to say that, you know, the industry or Stalin won't make mistakes. Organizations will make mistakes and they have to learn. But it's all about responsibility and taking those things on board and doing something about it. I'd very much hope that the banking industry as a whole and the fintech industry really take lessons of the past on board and try really, really hard to do the right things in future.
0: This is exactly what I hoped we might talk a bit more about. Um, Cecilia, you work very closely with UNICEF, that's the United Nations Children's Fund. And to my mind, this is very much at that sweet spot that Anne has hinted at, technology, meeting, impact, open-minded funders, a bit of vision. Tell us what you're doing.
2: So at UNICEF, I started working there about three years ago uh, as an advisor for what we call the unicef venture fund so i was specifically recruited to structure this first investment vehicle within the united nations context that would invest in frontier technologies that would solve local social problems in developing and emerging countries
0: and what does that mean frontier technologies just tell us a little bit.
2: So frontier technologies are basically emerging technologies, new wow. new technologies that we think can impact more than a billion people, we normally say, but also lie in a $100 billion market. So technologies that can be financially sustainable, but at the same time impact large groups of people.
0: Wow, what an extraordinary opportunity. Tell us what you've been funding and something you've learned so far.
2: So we've been funding, especially technologies around blockchain, data science, AI, drones, and emerge in virtual and augmented reality.
0: Well, hang on, gosh, my mind is already buzzing. I've been taken <laughs> through Wired magazine in the space of ten seconds. Drones, let's zoom in a bit.
2: So, drones are particularly important. Uh, well, in multiple ways, but one, for example, where roads are not as clear as in New York or London or or Southamptons where you you guys are. But for example, in Malawi, uh, where roads get flooded, where it's difficult to move around, and sometimes you need to urgently transport medical supplies or blood samples. To test for, you know, important diseases.
0: Got it. And you're—that's one of the things you're funding. Blockchain. I have to be honest with our listener. It's a much hyped concept which has occasionally bamboozled me. Uh, uh, if you're funding it, it's got a practical use. Tell us what it is.
2: It's got a practical use. Blockchain is basically a process to record digital information in a public database, maximizing data security. So. What that means in you know, in layman terms basically is, for example, one of our solutions works in India and is using blockchain and Internet of Things to help track vaccines and food throughout the supply chain. In India, this startup that we funded was basically doing just a pilot in a low-income area of India. During COVID, the government needed to distribute food, uh, rice and grains to low-income people And they managed to track and evaluate the supply chain, understand the checkpoints of the different parts of the supply chain to get the food to the people, ensuring that there was a minimum waste moving forward and ensuring that the delivery was on a timely manner in the best capacity.
0: Well, I know that a listener is going to want to go and have a search about the UNICEF venture fund and see some of the things that you've been uh, supporting. Um, I just wonder, um, Cecilia, listening to Anne's journey, um, what question would you put to her? And Anne, of course, I'll ask you the same in return. But Cecilia first, to Anne.
2: You know, like, it's just so hard to choose one because I feel like I would talk to her for way longer. I think Anne is very different, certainly, you know, from the field in general. Um, (laughs) But I am wondering, because, you know, I'm always excited to learn as well, What you were saying about the social metrics that that you have at Sterling and that you have set up and are so important, is that common today in other banks?
1: I think that the fintech world, the new bank world, is full of people who want to make things better. We've had a new group of new entrants into the market that see the world differently. They're not social enterprises, but these organizations, and that includes Sterling, believe that the only way you can grow and prosper is if you do the right thing. And that is the secret of the success of Starling and other firms. And we're not unique, but there's a whole generation of people and a generation of firms that believe that we can grow by being super fair and not punishing people who can't manage their financial affairs.
0: Cecilia, do reflect on what Anne's just said, and then I'm going to ask Anne to ask you a question.
1: With where you are at
2: Sterling, is there something in your mind that you've been wanting to do that if you had more time, more resources, you would do, and maybe I'm not speaking necessarily about a product, it's more like about a need that you want to address moving forward with the bank?
1: Yes, I get a lot of pushback from people saying we need cash in order to support inclusion and that the cash society is needed by people on low incomes. I think the opposite. I think all our effort has to go into e-money systems and electronic money that is accessible to all. What we do need is a system where we can include everybody. And we can't do that in our own, darling. You know, we're just one organisation. We need government and we need all banks to actually take this other view that we need to be inclusive.
2: I think if we lived in a digital financed world, corruption would be so highly diminished just because of the nature of the money system, and especially with the penetration of cell phones globally, even in low-income areas. I think that would be fantastic.
0: Yeah, um, and you've heard Cecilia talk about connecting business expertise with social impact, her work at UNICEF. Is there a question that you'd like to ask her?
1: If you had one ask from the you know the social enterprise, the social business world of banks, not just darling, but the, the banking sector, what would it be?
2: So when I started Yunus and Youth, I remember a lot of people didn't believe I was going to be able to do what I wanted, which was to create a social enterprise myself. I wanted to practice what I preached. And if I said I could educate this young generation of people, I could do it in a financially sustainable way when I said, you know, these people that we support through education, these young people building social enterprise, they cannot afford to get access to the training we provide. So I thought if we cannot cover the cost to the entrepreneurs, we will cover the cost to the mentors. And at first everyone laughed, but then I realized the ideal mentors come from corporations. They're trained on business skills. And we found a way to build a financial model for the organization that relies on providing a value for corporations. After that, you know, we were able to support very early stage entrepreneurs when a lot of the ideas are created. I always thought, you know, the financial system works to provide, of course, loans and uh, services to people that are more established, but early stage entrepreneurs don't have access to the same kind of financial resources. How can we find a way in which we can create a new kind of fund that provides funding In a much earlier stage than we're normally used to so i think i would love to think through with banks or financial institutions how to get around this because i definitely know it's risky but you know i do think there must be some potential
0: well there's a huge conundrum and you meet a huge number of entrepreneurs what do you make of the challenge
1: i think entrepreneurship is really really tough and the majority of entrepreneurs do not raise money and lots of great ideas are never developed because there's no funding. And trying to get the right sort of funding in the right sort of hands at the right time is always a challenge. And to try to do that in a diverse way is even more challenging because venture capital funding goes to people who look like the funders. Yeah. Who have um, connections usually. Yes. And people who become entrepreneurs, especially in you know the tech startup world, normally have the financial resources so that if they fail, they are not destitute. So what we are doing is with the current system is investing more and more money in businesses that are run by people who just look like those fund managers. Are we not getting money into the hands of a diverse group of people that appreciate a wide range of problems? We need to actually take a look at those wider ideas. And I suppose that's why cecilia's in in the role she's in, is that she's grappling with this very, very difficult issue.
0: Absolutely. Wishing I could connect you in real time to sit and explore this uh, for much longer. Let's change gear because I want to ask a much bigger question about finance and money at the end of our conversation. This is a quick fire round. Same three questions to every guest on the lens so far. The first one is, who would you most like to meet for coffee? They have to be alive. And uh, Cecilia, I'll start with you and then Anne.
2: You know what? Uh, It's funny, but I think since you asked me a question now, I would love to meet Anne for coffee. I think like after this conversation, I'm so inspired. She knows so much, she has done so much. I mean, it's unbelievable. She's built a bank differently in a different way. And she's trying to do something different.
0: I'm not gonna talk you out of that answer, Cecilia. Um, It's uh, the first time uh, a Lens guest has chosen to have coffee with another Lens guest, but only because we're recording virtually, aren't we? So I, I feel that exact desire too. Anne. It's
1: a date. It's a date. <laughs> we have, to have
0: coffee. It's a done um, deal. Uh, Thanks, UK. Anne, it's a done deal. Um, and I'm going to uh, ban you from choosing Cecilia, although I know you've accepted the coffee invitation. Who would you have coffee with? I think I'd
1: like to have coffee with the, you know, President Obama. I think that he's an interesting combination of somebody who's held so much power and has a different slant in the world.
0: Perhaps we would find him in a more reflective mood for that reason.
1: Mm. So how does he feel? And how does he feel about what's going on in the states at present? What does he feel about Black Lives Matter? And what can we learn? We are going through huge shifts in society. I want to go forward rather than back. So I think those will be interesting conversations.
0: Great choice. Thank you, Anne. How about something from your bookshelf, a book you recommend to others? It doesn't have to be a business book. Anne, first.
1: Mm, I Quite a few Silicon Valley books, actually. Ben Horovitch's The Hard Thing About Hard Things, which I've been known to pick chapters out and actually play in my executive teams. Starting a business is tough.
0: It's a great choice. We'll link to this in the notes uh, for the episode. Cecilia, what do you choose? What's on the shelf?
2: So if I had to recommend to you a book, I would say the latest book I read was Becoming from Michelle Obama. I think she's a force of nature. I think you see the famous person and you're like I want to be that person. I'm you know I want to achieve that. And I think what you see in a lot a lot in the entrepreneurial world is that you don't see the tears, the suffering, the sweat that took you there. Something I look up to in Michelle Obama is that she's a down-to-earth person and she is very transparent.
0: Yeah. It's a it's a great choice. Now forgive me both of you, I have a final question and it's a piece of advice to your former self. Tell us where we're going back to and what you say to that younger self. And where do we go back to and what do you say to them?
1: I think that um, life is short, life's very valuable. Cram as much in as possible. I said earlier that I stay five years in each job. Well, that was probably a long time. It is possible to cram more in and that's important. Do lots, do more. Make more mistakes, be more exciting.
0: That is an amazing rallying call. makes me want to rip this microphone out of the laptop and get out there. <laughs> uh, that's awesome. Thank you, Anne. Cecilia, what do you say to uh, a, a former version of yourself? Where, where would you go and what would you say?
2: I echo what Anne says, and I would also focus on try to lower the self-doubt. I think I've done a fair amount of things and a lot of crazy things. But it wasn't smooth or easy. It was full of doubt on every little step. And even though I was doing it, I think I could have enjoyed it more if I could have trusted myself and my abilities a bit more.
0: Yeah, well, through the um, magic of video connection, I can see Anne nodding along to your answer, aren't you, Anne? (laughs) Okay, so let's just take just a few minutes. We've had our final quickfire round, but I did want to go back to a particular subject. My question is, how can we improve our relationship with money? So let's go as pithy and concise as we can. Anne, where do we start?
1: There are some people who never open the envelope. You know, they never open that bill. There are some people that spend every Sunday evening on that Excel spreadsheet. Neither extreme is healthy. Um, Use the tools you have available, and there are lots in the market at the moment to enjoy being in the middle, you know, become comfortable. FinTech is a fantastic opportunity for lots of people around the world to come up with the tools, the apps they need to have a successful financial life.
0: I've noticed you practicing what you preach about this relationship with money, not being afraid to start a service for much younger, customers or children of customers.
1: Yes, we have just launched a product which is for children of our customers. We are encouraging people to be comfortable. We are encouraging people to to have a happier life. You know, the most important thing you have is your health and your family's health. And then it's your financial health. And not having money and not being able to manage your money makes life very painful. And we have an obligation as an industry, as a banking industry, to try and help people with these challenges.
0: Cecilia, you've seen firsthand the transformative power of money, thoughtfully deployed, thoughtfully considered. How do we improve our relationship with it?
2: You know, I can speak of the educational system in Argentina, and I can tell you that there's no financial education until you go to college at all. So I would say that, you know, there's a lot of innovations in the education system, for example, including software development classes, programming. I wonder why is there no financial education? I mean, I would start by secondary school, but even in primary school with little things, understanding how to manage money. Well,
0: Anne, I know that you would have been inspired by that particular challenge. You are already well on the way to dominating the UK global domination or more <laughs> local focus
1: oh uh, one day uh, i would love starling to be a global company because finance is a global
0: issue well watch this space for now so much great food for thought That's cecilia shapiro co-founder of unison youth and investment advisor at unicef ventures and of course the inimitable Anne bowden founder and chief exec of starling thank you both so much for joining me
2: thank you for having me thank you so much for having us
0: been listening to the lens with me ollie barrett the lens is a business in the community podcast powered by fujitsu and supported by mccann if you like what you've heard then please rate review and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts it really helps and makes a difference thank you also we're on instagram at the lens podcast or on the business in the community website The Lens is produced and directed by Aurelia Saletsketa, music and editing by Giselle Hall and Will Francis, and our executive producer is Sergio Lopez. Until next time, goodbye.